Welcome to The Structure Show. I'm Tom Krasit, Executive Editor of Structure, the company that brings you the most informative and useful events in the tech industry. Today we're going to talk about one of the biggest and potentially most game-changing deals in the history of the chip industry, the meeting of beautiful minds last week in Aspen, hosted by Fortune, and why Microsoft's big cloud privacy win might actually cause the cloud computing industry some problems down the road. Uh, joining me today is Barb Darrow of Fortune, just back from that Fortune Tech conference in Aspen, uh, and Stacy Higginbotham, whose IoT podcast and newsletter you simply have to follow if you want to be current on anything and everything related to the Internet of Things. Uh, so today, we're going to start with Microsoft and this big cloud deal. And, and Barb, can you set the, the stage a little bit for this? You know, what was Microsoft, what, what principle were they arguing and how did this all go down? Well, Microsoft and other cloud companies, but I think Microsoft and its general counsel, and now I think he's president as well, Brad Smith, had been saying that cloud companies shouldn't be compelled by U.S. authorities and warrants to turn over user information that resides in a offshore data center. Um, and that had been a complete bone of contention for quite some time. And, you know, Cause you know the notion of cloud is borderless commerce, but you know all of a sudden borders were being enforced. So last week, or wait a minute, was it this week or last week? It was I last week. Of time. Yeah. Okay, uh, a court in New York, uh, appeals court, rules that the government cannot enforce domestic warrants against Microsoft to turn over data, say in Dublin or you know germany or wherever um which is you know pretty much good news for the cloud companies um i'm curious about the 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 ram of the the, the negative ramifications you mentioned because i'm trying to think of some right now but well, we'll yeah, get back I mean, to that the uh, uh the good thing about it is that you know it, it clarifies the, the problem with this is is the same problem with a lot of legal disputes in the tech industry is that the laws are ancient you know they were just, mm -hmm. they were written for an environment that was current in like the 90s and i don't think people are things sat in filing cabinets right yeah i mean they just you didn't anticipate the degree and the speed at which you know this would all blow up so <laughs> i think that's a large part of of the problem i mean i think this is really cool from a from a privacy standpoint that if you are um a foreign you know citizen or if, if you're not a citizen of the u.s but you're using a u.s tech company's products mm -hmm you know, that your stuff can't be uh, accessed by the governments, by the U.S. government, simply because you happen to be using a U.S. company's products. Right. I mean, like, so that seems like a pretty big win. I mean, the ramification that I'm worried about, and, you know, we don't know exactly how this is going to play out, and it will, it will take a lot of, you know, actual congressional involvement in the part of a lot of countries, but, you know, I, I just have a feeling that if governments start realizing that they can't get at data simply because it's stored <laughs> at a data center overseas, that they'll just require... More hacking. Well, they'll require that data will have to be stored domestically, you know? Like uh, South Korea kind of does like this. Germany, as in Germany and uh, Switzerland, Russia, right. Russia does this. There's a couple of countries that do it. I mean, it, 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 it would suck. You know, it would really suck if that was what happened. One, because, you know, then... I mean, the governments who would do that would be the ones who would be all up in your business you know, as a matter of course, you know, but too, but it'll also make the cloud less reliable and less, um, the, you know, the performance would suffer the, there's a lot of ramifications that could come of that. And not to mention the expense of trying to set up, right. 
you know. I, I was going to say, I don't know if there's performance hits, but definitely it would cost more. Well, you, I mean, you set up overseas, <laughs> like if you're Microsoft or you're Google or Amazon Web Services, you set up data centers in strategic locations around the globe, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like Facebook has a bunch in Scandinavia because they want to take advantage of the of the um, the cool air to, to help cool the data center. Right. And, you know, so like the, the, these data centers were chosen for reasons that made sense for cost and performance. And if you have to start choosing these things based on... And for taxing purposes. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is a very good part, Barbaro. That's part of the cost let's, equation. Let's, let us not forget that. Yes. No, that is a very good point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, to me, it's it would make the cost of operating a global cloud service really annoying. And so, like, you know, Microsoft and Google will be fine. You know, they'll they'll figure out a way. And Amazon, of course, is already operating. The, Amazon just opened a data center in India um, to com- partly to comply with data localization laws. And in basically, that country. all of them, all of them went to Germany. Not only because Germany is a large economy on its own independent of the EU, but also because of Germans, the German data sovereignty issues. So uh, it's some, interesting. It's an interesting thing. I mean, at some point, like as your usage grows of cloud services, it makes sense to put data centers lo- in local locations, right, for the same performance issues. So like if you have this huge growing business in, say, um, I don't know, Spain, you know that you may not have a data center right there now. You may be serving Spanish customers from the UK or Scandinavia or Germany, but you know if there were to be a huge growth in services there, and I'm just using that as an example, um, it would make sense to put a data center there. So you know, mm-hmm. like it, I, I don't know exactly how this will shake out, but data localization laws, you know, they were raised by several commentators in the wake of the decision, and and I I don't know, they give me kind of the the willies, I gotta say. <laughs> But I don't know. We'll have to see. You know, there's something we can definitely talk about this year at Structure and, and how the um, the need for companies to manage the growth of the cloud. I mean, this is just no it's no longer right. it's no longer a small operation. It's increasingly the way that the world will will be connected and, and will, um, you know, get their computing needs. And so, you know, figuring out a lot of these laws, you know, in the ways that that make the most sense to handle this growing environment is going to be really important. And expect a lot of more blog posts from Brad Smith at Microsoft as the laws start getting worked out. You know, yeah. well, the these good guys thing are is, all trying to position themselves as the leaders here. The good thing is that yeah, was, is that our Congress is very effective. So I'm sure that this will happen <laughs> you know, very very soon. Sorry, I, Stacey, I was going to say data. No, data localization laws could kind of become a oh, what's the word? A competitive advantage for certain countries who are like. Oh, we're going to mess with this. We're not like in your Spain example, especially for many countries in Europe, you can just stick a data center in, you know, Portugal and serve your Spanish customers. If Portugal has more favorable laws, um, giving them kind of the, the few jobs that the data center might offer. Um, so it, it becomes an issue though, when you've got countries that are huge, like the U S or Russia or China or India, all of which are, well, not all of which, some of which are hugely growing markets for these guys. So I I don't know. We'll we'll see. Every every country is gonna wanna is gonna wanna access this. I mean it's great for businesses that this decision went the way it did. It's great for the companies selling cloud services, but governments are probably looking at this and going, Yeah. Rot row. <laughs> yeah. I mean legitimate yeah. terrorism cases 
you know, there's that, but then there's, then you, I guess you get your secret services to your NSAs, et cetera, to, to get the data. But yeah. Well, I'm sure France among others is thinking very hard about these kinds of things right now, you know, given the climate in that country and, you know, it's not hard to imagine um, a bunch of other countries, you know, the one as more countries become more surveillance oriented, you know, the easiest way to be to make surveillance easy for your government agencies is to make sure the data is stored in your country. So I don't know. I think it'll be a, an interesting topic. And for now, you know, say the next two years is, is maybe not uh, going to impact the industry too much. But, you know, we'll have to see how that works down the road. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the big fortune conference out in Aspen last week. How was that, Barb? It sounded from well, the uh, from where I could sit, it sounded like you guys had a, actually a very interesting lineup of speakers. It was a great lineup, and it's my first time there. Stacy was there last year. First of all, the venue cannot be beat, except getting out is kind of difficult sometimes. But I mean, there are a couple of high points. Uh, Charles Koch likened. Um, he was asked. Alan Alan Murray asked him. You know something about how he, he had seemed to indicate he would vote for Hillary Clinton over Trump. And he said that was not true, that that's like asking him to vote for cancer or a heart attack. Which do you pick? Uh, that was kind of the biggest headline out of the show. I think uh, he picked the heart <laughs> I think it's, at least it's quicker, right? Well, um, cause you could, I it mean, may not be deadly. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's the cancer. And actually cancer may not be deadly. You know, yeah. it's just slower. Gosh, now you got me thinking about it. I mean, if you could choose right. the kind of cancer, then I think you'd right. think about it. But if you can't, if you have to roll the <laughs> dice on the cancer, I think you go with the heart attack. That's just right. Me. Uh, another hard, uh, another high point was um, uh, Intel CEO Krasanich. Am I pronouncing that right, Stacy? I always get it wrong. I Krasanich, think so. Um, was put on the spot a little bit about uh, the alleged fundra- Trump fundraiser he pulled out of, which he insisted was never going to be a fundraiser. And then as soon as he found out it was going to be a fundraiser, he said they pulled out. The other um, the other highlight for me was there was a guy there from a French um, kind of industrial consortium. We asked him about Brexit. This was not on stage. And he said, thank God we got rid of the, he, in his accent, he said, thank God we got rid of the Brits, which I thought was a high <laughs> point. Um and then Diane Green um, uh, acknowledged on stage that Google Cloud was, in fact, the power behind Pokemon Go, but was not asked, unfortunately, about what the, the glitches that happened in the early last week when servers fell over and Pokemon Go people were going crazy. So yeah, I want to talk anyway, a little that's... bit about that because it's. I mean, it, it actually because makes... it's Pokemon Go. I mean, I, I, you know, we <laughs> we've all been in this industry for a while. We've seen a lot of fads. We've seen a lot of crazes. Like this one was particularly interesting to me. You know how quickly yep. a wide variety of people jumped onto this game and, and started play not just playing it, but but planning their lives around it. Obsessing you know? about it. Yeah, totally. Stacy, tell the truth. Are you playing it? No, I'm not. Not either. I, I don't, I'm very intrigued by it, but I don't know what any of the Pokemons are. You know, like I don't... <laughs> I, I don't think you have to know. I, know. Well, I mean, don't you, if, aren't you some more one... valuable than others? I mean, so you sort of have to know. Oh. You know? If you're know. like playing for a... I, I guess to me, I'm not a game player, so I'm, or I'm not that kind of game player. I'm like, the idea of collecting things is kind of foreign i'm like well if you're gonna play just play and get what you get and don't get upset <laughs> but you you level up by connecting uh, collecting at, things at, i think so there were some people in aspen playing who were absolutely obsessed but my favorite story out of this was a little bit dark it was like how places like the um 
Holocaust Museum in D.C. was asking people to please not play because it's not appropriate. You know, I mean, there are things like that. Arlington National Cemetery. Yeah. You know, you got to have a little bit of perspective, I think. But Well, I think that's what makes this game interesting, though, is that it was so compelling that people lost that perspective. And, you know, from to bring it back to kind of a structure point of view, that level of gameplay, that uh, intense usage, I mean, what a what a computing requirement scaling problem <laughs> that must have been for for Niantic and Google and you know that's something I actually want to hear a lot more about is how you know, I, I don't think they could have anticipated that level of demand that fast people work like you know like I don't I don't really blame them for that because it I mean this took off like like few things we've seen before um, but you know, it, it, once you are in that situation, how then do you scale? I mean, like, did Niantic pay for enough capacity from Google? Does that even a paid thing because of the relationship between the two companies? Did Google right. not have the right kinds of infrastructure in place to support augmented reality gaming, which might be a different workload than than perhaps Google is mm -hmm. used to? Um, well, it's a fascinating actually... topic, I think, actually, from an infrastructure point of view. Yeah, I'm very curious how they architected it, just because there's so much real-time delivery of content that you've got to deal with based on location. So if you think about how that's designed, right, you've got to be like, this person's here, thus they need to see the following. And because of the, the po Pokemon change in locations... Mm -hmm. um, You've got to do that. And what happens if their internet connection goes out slightly or it gets a little wobbly or there's too much demand at that space? How do you how do you create resiliency in something like that? And I think we can't even ask where Google failed or didn't fail until we mm -hmm. understand how it was built and what resources they were pulling from. Because it's part of this fundamental shift to like real-time and wireless-dependent kind of architectures, if that makes sense. And there's a solid chance that it may not have even been an infrastructure problem at all, that it may have been something in the code that just simply couldn't handle, like you say, like these, these, um, like, what do you, what's the term for that? Like partially connected, you know, or like, you know, when intermittent you're, connection, intermittent or, you know, like, like if you're trying to process data over those kinds of connections, I mean, asynchronous. Oh, there you go. There's the, Ooh, that's, there's that's the deep. 25 cent word. <laughs> That's well. That's what it, it's asynchronous data processing. In 2016, those words are probably worth a dollar. I guess a quarter. Yeah, kind that's of, right. Yeah, chintzy. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Mock me later. <laughs> so yeah, you know, this is um, we're, we're reaching out to uh, Niantic and Nintendo uh, for structure, and I really hope that we can, uh, you know, have them to talk about this because I mean, you know, it's it, it's a fascinating question for our audience in a lot of ways. How do you architect this correctly? How do you scale it once you know you've got a hit? You know, how do you code to deal with these problems? And then, and then, is this a primer for augmented reality in general? You know, so like if other companies hit upon augmented reality uh, applications that are that are very popular, can they use this uh, model as a way to scale their own computing? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's uh, it's really cool, and it, it's uh. I don't really understand the appeal of the game, but the but the appeal of the game is is not you know questioned at this point. And I think they're launching uh, this week in uh, the UK and Japan. And I mean, I can't believe they didn't launch in Japan already, which is it's kind of funny if you think. Yeah, about I know. It, it but... seems kind of like well, that might have been the test bed right there. <laughs> I have a feeling it will do well in Japan, but 
And so the last thing I want to talk about today, Stacy Barb, uh, unfortunately, just had to uh, drop off to to go attend to some Microsoft earnings action. Um, but the last thing I want to talk about is this huge deal in the chip industry, where SoftBank um, is paying thirty-two point what four billion dollars. So it's twenty four point three billion pounds, which mm. translates to thirty two billion US dollars. It is the largest semiconductor deal since Broadcom and Avago merged, and that was last year. Uh, economically, it's big. It's also just incredibly significant because Arm is not a company that really was quote unquote for sale or that anyone thought would get bought, right, right. much less get bought by SoftBank. So, so uh, just to set the stage a little bit, let's. I, I'm most of our listeners probably know who Arm is, but you know, Arm uh, people get confused about Arm, and 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 you know, you and I have been following the company for a long time, so I just want to set some some basic things down. Arm uh, designs the processor cores that are at the heart of nearly every smartphone chip in the world. Um, really popular with low power designers, uh, p- people who need. Uh, reliable performance at low power characteristics, and uh, they own this market. Their their designs are at the core of um, the iPhone, uh, just about every Android phone. I, I mean, I don't even if you they can have name over a 90, non. So they, is there a non? They have ninety five percent. Yeah. Yes, there is a non. So Intel tried to make it into this market. There's a couple ASUS tablets. There's a couple Dell phones and tablets, but. On the Dell side, they've announced that they're getting out of this market. But it is like over 95% of the phones you will encounter have an ARM-based processor. And so ARM licenses those designs to other chip makers like Qualcomm. Uh, Apple has a, has a uh, what do they call that? The uh, design license? Design. Or, yeah. It's called an architecture license. Right. Uh, and Samsung, et cetera. But aside from just being... In the mobile world, which is where everyone's focused, Arm has a couple other lines of business that are actually more exciting because the mobile industry is pretty much stagnated. So it's for years been boosting its microprocessor line. And microprocessors are these tiny, tiny little chips with very low performance um, that are, think of them as the things running like the LEDs in your washing machine. Um, But with ARM, they're putting them in fitness trackers, in smartwatches, in thermostats. So these designs are a big business for them. They're very low margin, but huge, huge scale. The other side of the equation is ARM's been moving since, gosh, 2008, 2009 into servers. We're still waiting. We've been waiting for a really the long time. The mythical ARM server. The mythical ARM server. I hear that this year is going to be the year. Is this the year um, of the Linux on the desktop as well? Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so no idea if this is this is real or not. But actually in China, a lot of Chinese big companies have taken ARM architecture licenses, which is worth noting. Um, Amazon has an ARM license. I don't know if it's an architecture license or not. Um, but Amazon is selling their own ARM-based server or chips, not I mean, servers. Base chips. Yeah, our, I mean, we joke about the ARM server thing because I think both of us have, you know, been following this for a while, and and it's a compelling argument to have ARM as a server, um, at the heart of a server. It's the, the power characteristics, you know, the the scale out uh, infrastructures that so many people want to use. Um, yeah, like as you pack these servers closer and closer together, power consumption and you know. 
um, yeah, heat dissipation are, are huge issues. And, and yeah, we were talking about the Facebook putting its servers in Scandinavia because it's cold. I mean, like, you know, like if you can save power along the way while getting still good performance, I mean, it's something that I think a lot of these data center operators will look take a real hard look at, assuming assuming someone makes one, a chip in production that, that offers the performance characteristics of, of the Intel server chips. So they have actually tested them. Everybody has tested their own ARM servers. Right. Um, another thing is the workloads, because in a cloud environment, your workloads are spread across a power. You don't need the powerful server doing one job, right? You don't need a powerful chip doing one job because you virtualized it anyway. So you could have a cluster of less powerful chips kind of t- being responsible for whatever small chunk that is running and on containers that, accelerate know, this trend, right? Exactly. So there, there's that. Um, I think the industry kind of went down into a wrong turn with ARM chips and fabrics, and they're kind of coming back from that now. That was a big thing a couple of years ago. But anyway, we were talking not just about ARM and servers, but SoftBank and why the heck this basically it's a it's a Japanese conglomerate that happens to own two cellular carriers and a publishing company and has made investments in a lot of e-commerce companies. Why they buy a chip vendor or not a chip vendor, a chip designer. Yes. Be very careful about that. (laughs) I know. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting question, right? I mean, I, I think, you know, the strategic value of arm is, is huge. And, and, you know, it's hard to really understate how important, you know, the, the development of arms, architecture is to to the modern computing industry it, it really is the the core not to use a terrible pun of of the mobile computing industry um but yeah it's a little difficult to see exactly how it works within the broader softbank um portfolio i mean it, i mean conglomerate really seems to be the word for softbank at this moment it, it's buying a lot of different companies related to technology that don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense when looked at, you know, across the spectrum, but, um, so what if this is just a place to put its money? Well, that will accumulate. I, I mean, mean like, like, as you pointed out, like, you know, the, the, the value with the pound dropping, uh, it, you know, in the wake of the Brexit, uh, vote <laughs> arm became incredibly cheap, you know, way cheaper than I think anybody really thought about. And then SoftBank was just poised to make the move. Um, but they are paying 70 times earnings. Yeah, but you could argue that's, you could make an argument that's, that's not bad. I mean, I, I and I hear you. I mean, like it, it's hard to it's hard to see a number like seventy times and and think that you got a good deal. But but I don't know, you know. And I think you know to your point about you know the 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 slow road to the ARM server. You know, this money could really help ARM accelerate the development of of cores specifically designed for that. Um, for that segment, I mean, I, I'm very interested to see what ARM does with this investment, and you know how it thinks about future its future product. You got to assume that ARM's product roadmap changed this week because they now have so investment dollars to support a lot of different ideas. So I have some suggestions there because this is something I thought a lot about. I can't tell you what SoftBank's going to do with this, but I can tell you where ARM could really use the investment. And SoftBank has said that they're going to double the headcount of ARM in the UK. They're going to increase employees all over the world. So if they are poised to make an investment in ARM, my bet is ARM focuses on a couple things. One, artificial intelligence, both on the mobile side 
and in the server side. ARM's done a little bit here, and it has a Mali graphics processor core that, you know, it totally does not compete anywhere near NVIDIA stuff. NVIDIA is doing quite well in this market, and so you've got to figure there's room for other um, people to to make a move in this market based on you know their ARM architectural licenses. NVIDIA is doing well. I think the thing to think about with AI as a workload, there's two there's two kinds. There's the execution side, and then there's the training side. Um, and NVIDIA's got stuff in both areas, but. What you're going to need is massively parallel, massive parallelization, and you're going to need intense I.O. So GPUs are the best thing for that now. But really, we're seeing a lot of people saying that we're going to need specialized chips, which means it could be you could tweak an ARM architecture. They could come up with something there. NVIDIA is working on stuff as well. There are other companies. So you could see a lot happening there. The other thing is they need to do it both server side, right? Which could be training and execution in the cloud, but they also need to do it on the end device. And there's some companies like Movidius that have really worked hard here. That might be an interesting acquisition opportunity. There's also things like Arm just bought embedded vision company, Apical, a couple weeks ago. And that's, I look at that and I'm like, oh, that's a great way to increase your kind of AI capabilities. So, I think that's where we're going to see ARM do a lot. There's also security things that it could do. It could invest in some more software for like end-to-end devices. So like IoT stuff. Um, And, you know, I'm sure there's other stuff that I just haven't thought of yet. I mean, I think, you know, to me, that's the possibility here is like, I think SoftBank was just looking for a company that was poised to do some big things. Um, and that would return value back to some of SoftBank's other investments. Um, and for ARM, I you know you could totally get it. I mean, it, it seems I I felt a little bit bad for their CEO who was basically like, yeah, if we'd stayed in the EU, we probably wouldn't have done this deal. But you know that's reality. That happened, and and that's going to affect you know a lot of UK companies. And you know there aren't there aren't really a lot of homegrown UK tech companies. Uh, with the heft of ARM, I I can't think of a single one actually, um, and it's a shame because ARM is. actually they didn't even have very many UK. They had like one UK customer, I think, is what he told me a couple of years ago. Maybe that's changed, but it hasn't changed to a huge, significant perspective, right? Right. And so ARM was ARM was based in the UK because it was a UK company. And- it wasn't there because its customers were there. It's um it's yeah so it's kind of sad to see that happen and and I you know unfortunately it'll probably happen to a lot more companies based in the UK but um you know I think it is an interesting deal for ARM because I think they they were you know the business of licensing these chips was never as lucrative as you know what the Qualcomm's and Apple's and Samsung's of the world are doing and you know so now with you know investment dollars on a you know maybe not quite an Apple scale but you know, still much, much, you know, more cash flow than, than they had before coming into ARM right now. I mean, they, they are poised to do some interesting things. They've always been a technology leader, uh, and now they have some resources behind them to, to go in some interesting directions. And, yeah, I did <laughs> I did think it was interesting that uh, Masasan, the uh, the leader of SoftBank, um, which you, you quoted in your, in your Medium post about this, uh, basically is preparing for the singularity with, with his ARM buy which I thought was um, interesting. A little crazy. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Like, I, <laughs> I, I think if you, so I, I'm going to divorce 
the singularity people can very easily laugh at. You know, you, you're like, okay. It is shooting um, fish in a barrel. Yeah. But if you think of it simply as the idea that everything's going to have a computer, everything's capable of gathering data, you can say cheap data leads to fast, accurate, cheap analytics and insights. And then suddenly you have augmented intelligence basically for people and that's not crazy no it's it's something we're already doing with our phones and our devices and it's only going to get more seamless and easier or actually more seamless and less visible but also not necessarily get easier (laughs) well it'll get easier to implement i mean we'll see platforms that help abstract all of this out but I look at that and I'm like, we can call it the singularity or we can just call it like a natural evolution of computing. Um, but he's not wrong. Exactly. He's just <laughs> using words that other people might not use. <laughs> wow, man. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Thank you very much, Stacy, for your time. And thanks to Barb as well. Um, if you, uh, have plans this fall, please be sure to check out Structure Security uh, September 28th and 29th in uh, the Presidio, the lovely Golden Gate Club in San Francisco. Uh, And Structure is scheduled for November 8th and 9th uh, back at our usual place at UCSF Mission Bay in San Francisco. And I believe uh, Stacy will be at both of those events. Um, And uh, we look forward to seeing a bunch of you out there. Thanks, everybody. 